But uh, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, we're uh, excited about what God is going to do uh, in us th this week. Now, uh, as Pastor Joe has already mentioned, this is the Discipleship Conference for the Living Faith Fellowship. Now, I, I, I realize that there's some of you that are coming in from other places and may not be familiar with what the Living Faith Fellowship is, but what it, it basically is, is, is simply this. It's a, it's a loose-knit fellowship of churches. We're not trying to create a denomination or anything like that. It's just a bunch of us who have found each other, and we found each other over what we have in common. And basically, some of the things we have in common is a common belief about this particular book. We, we believe this book, and we don't, uh, we don't correct it. We, we just take it for what it says. We believe that it says what it means, and it means what it says. And that's the approach that we have when it comes to this book. We, we share a common philosophy of ministry amongst our churches. That doesn't mean that we, we dot every I and cross every T exactly the same. But we do share... A, a, a philosophy of ministry that is in common with each other. We also have a common belief about our mission. And this conference is all about that. It's about helping us to be more effective in the mission that the Lord gave to us and expects for us to fulfill. The, the mission of making disciples. Now, you should have gotten a sheet when you came in tonight, and uh, I'd like to, as we get started tonight, I'd like to just kind of tell you where we'll be headed, and it'll help you to contextualize. Uh, our, 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 oh, okay, yeah. I, I thought you were going to come after me or something, bro. Okay, so tomorrow night, Monday night of the conference, I'm going to be talking about the biblical mandate of discipleship. And, yeah, there we go. The biblical mandate of discipleship. The question that we'll be answering tomorrow night is, why? Why are we to make disciples? The theme uh, of, of the messages, or the message that I'll present tomorrow night, will be the big picture that motivates discipleship. And, and listen, y'all, if... If you want to, to actually see how the Bible fits together, man, tomorrow night is just a, a key night for you to be here. I hope you'll do whatever you can to be here. Okay, then Tuesday night, I'm going to be talking about the biblical understanding of discipleship. And the main questions that I'll be answering is, what is discipleship? And who is to do it, and where does it actually begin, or with whom does it actually begin? And the theme of the message that uh, I'll be presenting on Tuesday night will be the understanding that activates discipleship. And then our final night, on Wednesday night, I'll be talking about the biblical approach to discipleship and the main questions that we'll seek to answer on Wednesday night is how is discipleship to be done and to what extent 
is it to be done? And the theme of the message will be to present the passion that invigorates discipleship. And man, I can hardly wait to share with you Paul's passion when it comes to this thing of making disciples. I am praying that Paul's passion will be my passion, and by the time you go back to your city or to your church, that Paul's passion for discipleship will be your passion as well. Amen? But tonight, I'm going to be talking about what may just be the most important message in my mind that I'll be preaching all week. And the bummer about that is, is a, a lot of out-of-town folks are right now making their way here, won't be able to be a part of this, but man, I'm glad that you are here tonight. Now, the, the interesting thing about the passage that we're going to be going to tonight is that the passage doesn't use the word disciple, it doesn't use the word disciples, it doesn't use the word discipleship. But what this passage actually does for us is it provides for us the biblical illustration of discipleship. The main question that we'll be addressing tonight is, what if we don't make disciples? And the theme of tonight's message will be to present the Old Testament picture that accentuates the need for discipleship. That Old Testament picture. And to pick up that Old Testament picture, let me invite you to turn to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is a, a New Testament passage that deals with Israel's exodus in the Old Testament. And before we actually dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tonight, let me give you, and this is in your notes, the general reminders about the exodus. General reminders about the exodus. And, okay, we're officially beginning now. And what I'm about to, to get into here is absolutely critical for where we'll be going the rest of the night. So if, you, if your attention span will last for about 30 seconds, I, I want to try to give you some reminders about what God did in delivering his people in the Old Testament. Okay, so it, it goes like this. God's people were in bondage in Egypt. Egypt at that period of time was the world power, and that world power was being led by a wicked king by the name of Pharaoh. And day in and day out, God's people labored under the taskmaster's whip in Egypt, crying out for God to deliver them. And finally, God did that. And you know how he did it? He did it through the blood of the Passover lamb. Okay, I, I think I lied. That wasn't 30 seconds. I think it could have been 60 seconds. But hopefully, 
you, you grabbed that. Okay, it took me about 60 seconds to tell you that story, and yet I want you to understand this. More column inches are given to that story than any other thing in the entire Bible. <laughs> Check this out, y'all. We get one chapter on creation, <laughs> and yet when it comes to Israel's exodus, we get five books. It basically is the information that we have in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and on into Joshua. And we would have to, based on the amount of space that God gives to that story, we'd have to ask ourselves, why would God spend so much time on that little story? And this is in your notes. The Exodus is not just a portion of Israel's history. The Exodus is a portrait of the Christian life. Now, as you're writing that, let me see if we can pull our attention span back in. And now let me tell you about our Exodus. Because you see, check it out, y'all. We were in bondage in Egypt. Egypt in the Bible is always a picture of sin and this world. And we were in bondage in Egypt. And day after day, we labored under the taskmaster of sin. And that, that world system and the taskmaster was a wicked king. And his name wasn't Pharaoh. It was Satan. And we longed for a deliverer. And you know what? God brought us out. That's what the word exodus means. God brought us out. And you know how he did it, y'all? He did it through the blood of the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 says that Christ is our Passover. Okay. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what's happening here is God is giving us his commentary on the exodus. And I want you to listen as God gives to us the play-by-play. -play. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Okay, now, now let's just stop right there. And I, I, I was putting the emphasis on the syllable that I wanted you to, to hear as I was reading that. The key word in this passage is the word, did you catch it? It's the word all. Check it out. They were, he says, they were all under the cloud. And what that means is that they had all experienced God's guidance. Do you remember that's how he, he led them? By that cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And they had all... Every last one of them had experienced God's guidance. Next, he says that they all passed through the sea. 
And, of course, he's talking about the, the parting of the Red Sea. And through that, they all experienced God's deliverance. You remember, as they came to the Red Sea and the waters parted and they passed through. Listen, it was the final break where they left Egypt and that old life behind. They had all experienced God's deliverance. And then next he says that they were all baptized unto Moses. And that is they had all experienced God's power because, listen, through their baptism, as it were, into the Red Sea, what happened is as they passed through, those waters fell, and listen, their old master was dead and buried in the same way that in Romans chapter 6, it talks about through our spiritual baptism, our old master is dead and buried. They had all experienced God's power. And then next he says, and they did all eat the same spiritual meat. And of course that spiritual meat was manna. And they did all drink the same spiritual drink. And the, the water that they, they drank, he says in this passage, was Christ. And what I want you to see is what this passage is saying is that they all had experienced God's provision. So check this out, y'all. What the children of Israel had actually experienced was God's guidance, God's deliverance, God's power, and God's provision. And, and listen, can you imagine everything that they had experienced and how wonderful that was, how miraculous all of that was, how incredible all of that was. And you would think that having experienced all of that, that these would have been the holiest people on the planet, as holy as all of us. But I want you to watch where it left them. Verse 5 says this, but with many of them, God was not well pleased. Wait, wait, you're talking about all these people that have just experienced all that? Yeah. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And check it out, y'all. They had all experienced God's power, but he says that with many of them, God was not well pleased. And if there was ever a gross exaggeration in the Bible... It might be this word, many, right there. Because do you understand that the Bible tells us in the book of Numbers that the, the men aged 20 and above that came out of Egypt, it, it gives us the number, and it goes through tribe by tribe, gives us the number, and it even totals it for us because God knew we probably weren't going to do the math. And so he tells us, how many men, tw age 20 and above, came out? And you know how many came out? 603,550. 603,550. 
And he says, and with many of them, God was not well pleased. Do you know how many of them it actually was that God was not well pleased with? 603,548. For real. All but two of them. Now you know what I'm talking about when I say, but with many of them. God was being so gracious with that word many, man. With many of them, God was not well pleased. And listen, after experiencing everything that they had experienced, you know what happened to them? They became disillusioned. They became discouraged, disappointed, disenchanted. And and listen, all but two of them died having never experienced what God intended when he brought them out of Egypt. And, And let me tell you what's so crazy about this and what is, in my estimation, what is so sobering about this. I want you to look at what he says in verse 6. He says, now now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And just in case we missed it, he repeats himself down in verse 11. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written... For our admonition. Listen, y'all. You know what God's saying here? He says, listen, the reason that I'm reminding you of what happened with Israel and the children of Israel in their exodus, the reason that I recorded that is not just so that we could have the record of history. It's not just so God could rag them out and tell us what a bunch of losers they were. What God is saying is, the reason I'm telling you this, the reason I'm reminding you of this, is so that what happened to them doesn't happen to you. Are you hearing that, my brothers and sisters? And as I look at this passage, I'm telling you, i got to think to myself, could it be that God is saying to us that most of the people who experience God's guiding hand that led them to be delivered by his powerful hand from the bondage of our sin and have experienced his provision in our lives, Could it be that he's trying to say to us that unless something unbelievably significant takes place, that we'll go our entire Christian life and never please God? And by the time it's all said and done, we'll be discouraged, disillusioned, disenchanted, and actually overthrown 
in the wilderness having never experienced God's purpose in bringing us out of the bondage of our sin. And I've got to tell you, y'all, in the 21st century, in the Laodicean church period, I, I know this is going to make me sound like a negative old codger. I am an old codger. I'm just not negative, okay? But it's gonna, this is going to make me sound like one. I, I truly believe that out of L six hundred and out of every six hundred and three thousand five hundred and fifty that get delivered out of the bondage of our sin, I really do believe six hundred and three thousand five hundred and forty-eight die having never experienced what God actually intended their salvation to be. And I, I hope to, to show you tonight why I believe that. But, but we'd have to ask ourselves, okay, so what's the deal, man? Why did that happen to them? And why is God telling us to be careful that what happened to them doesn't happen to us? And can I suggest to you tonight, biblically, that there, you know, obviously there was a lot of reasons for this, but listen, there was one fundamental problem that the nation of Israel had, and it was simply this. They really didn't understand the purpose for their exodus. What I'm suggesting to this group of believers tonight is that God is trying to say, hey, you better learn the purpose that I have in bringing you out of your sin. Because if you miss what they missed, you're going to end up where they ended up. And, and, and here was the purpose. Here was that thing that they missed you God brought them out of Egypt to bring them in to Canaan. Okay, and I, I get it. That's simple, and it's a little blankies on our notes, and, you know, bless your hearts. I appreciate the fact that you're taking notes tonight and, and all of that. But, oh, my goodness, I hope that you grab the weight of what this is actually saying, God brought them out of Egypt to bring them into Canaan. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 23, it, it says this, And when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and sore upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon his household before our eyes. Here it comes now. And he brought us out from thence that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. And what I want you to see here is what the scripture is telling us is that in the heart of God, 
His desire was not only to release the children of Israel from slavery, but it was to exchange that land for that land. It was to give them an entirely different set of, or a, a different existence than they had in Egypt. He had an existence for them. He had a life for them. He had a plan for them in Canaan. He brought them out of that land to give them that land. In Exodus chapter 3, he repeats the principle. He's talking to Moses here. This is at the burning bush. And this is what he says to him. I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Mosquitoites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And again, God is showing us that there was a plan, and it wasn't just this, but this was for that. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 38, God says, I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan. I love this little add-on, and to be your God. Hallelujah, man. Okay, listen, y'all. If we're going to take Israel's exodus, and we're going to try to learn from that and apply it to our exodus, do you understand what this is actually saying? Well, what this is is Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, where he tells us, listen, that we have been delivered from the power of darkness. Yay! But do you understand what this verse is saying? Is that he did that so that we could be translated into the kingdom of his dear son. But this wasn't an end in itself. This was for that. In Acts chapter 26 and verse 18, Paul's giving his testimony and he talks about how he had been turned from darkness. Yay! But the reason that he was turned from darkness, do you see it there? Was so that he could be turned to what, y'all? To light. He, he, he says that he had been turned from the power of Satan. Yay! But the reason that God turned him from the power of Satan is so that he could be turned to the power of God. He says it wasn't just so that we could have forgiveness. I'm all about forgiveness. I like it. Yay. But listen, it wasn't just about the forgiveness. It was so that we could be brought in to an end that God designed for us. And listen, y'all, 
Here's the negative old codger again. Most Christians I know have this part. And we've been delivered from our sins, and we're going to go to heaven when we croak. Yay. But that's not what this thing is all about. That's not what salvation is all about. And maybe the, the greatest illustration of, of all of this is the illustration that we find in marriage. We come into the New Testament and the New, New Testament application of marriage as we look in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2. He talks about the fact that, and I think we're behind a little bit on the slides, but, but he talks about the fact that we... Uh, have been espoused to Christ as our one husband. He's likening our salvation to marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, he's been talking to, to husbands and, and wives, and, and he comes down to verse 32, and he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And again, what we learn is that in the New Testament, marriage is a picture of the Christian life. Christ is the bridegroom, and we, as the church, are the bride. And, and as we go to the Bible and we let God define for us and, and give us the explanation of marriage, and again, we're a little behind on the slides there, the biblical explanation of marriage is that it involves leaving, right? There's a negative aspect of this thing. But it doesn't just involve leaving. Okay. And God knew we were a little dense, especially English-speaking people. And so what he did is he made it rhyme for us. <laughs> it's not just about leaving, but it's about what, class? <laughs> it's about leaving. And the leaving is so we can do the cleaving. Here's this young lady in one of our churches, and she flits around, and she's all, you know, excited because she's engaged, you know. Man, is it hot with this ring on, you know. And she wants to tell everybody, you know, about what's going on. And so as it's getting close, you know, the, the girls in the church throw a shower for her. And so, man, it's kind of weird, though, as everybody is, you know, just gathering and she's talking and flitting around, she keeps talking about this same thing. And they finally want her to, to speech, speech, and she says, three weeks from today, I get to leave my Now, let, let me tell you something. If you're marrying that girl and you hear that, you better run, man. <laughs> because I don't think she gets the concept. Right. The leaving is for the cleaving. Here's this old, old codger like me. And it's his 50th wedding anniversary, and so, you know, folks at the church plan a big party. So 
she comes up to the microphone. Yep. I'd just like to say 50 years ago today, I left my father and my mother. If that old boy said that, that that may be the the end of that marriage. If that's all that it that it meant, and yet you know what, y'all, there there's we're gonna have a testimony meeting at the church. I'd just like to say, fifty years ago today, Lord saved me. Yay. Hey, I'm, I'm grinning. I'm glad for you. Yes, because you received Christ. You ain't going to go to heaven when you crow. But if all you did was come out of Egypt, we missed the point. God says that he brought Israel out of Egypt so that he could bring them in to Canaan. And, and, and listen, do you understand how long of a journey it actually was when God brought them out of Egypt to get into the land of Canaan? In Deuteronomy chapter 1, in verse 2, watch this now, there are 11 days' journey from Horeb, Go, please go back. I don't have this one memorized. <laughs> there are 11 days journey. They were just checking to see, especially when they saw Kadesh Barnea on there. Let's see him remember that. There are 11 days journey from Hora by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. Let's just stop there for a second and let me just tell you this. That Horeb is the area where God met Moses at the burning bush. Okay, Kadesh Barnea is at Mount Seir, and Kadesh Barnea is the southern tip of Canaan. Okay, and God says that that journey, and I want to come back to this verse, so just have that on your radar in just a sec. He says that. That journey from Egypt to their entrance into Canaan was 11 days' journey. Okay, you know how long it actually was? Okay, let's keep reading here. And it came to pass in the, the 40th day, in, in the 40th month, Are you kidding me? 40 years for an 11-day journey? What was an 11-day journey actually took them 40 years. The actual distance, and, and you go on with those slides there. The 11-day journey actually took them 40 years. Years, the actual distance that they traveled was about 300 miles 
And that means that the average distance that they traveled was about 36 yards a day. <laughs> the average distance per week is 250 yards. You understand that a snail could have gotten there faster. And the question that we, again, would have to ask ourselves, okay, we get this from God's vantage point, 11 days, one year, two years, 40 years? Again, what, what, what do you think God was doing during that whole time? What was his, what was his M.O.? As they're down there wandering in circles, God tells us what he was doing in Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 21, Nehemiah 9, 21 says, Yea, 40 years didst thou, watch this now, sustain them in the wilderness. And I want you to note this, this interesting word. He says that God sustained them, but I want you to notice that God did not satisfy them. And just file that, because we're going to be coming back to it. But, but how was it, y'all, that God actually sustained them in the wilderness? How did God keep them alive in, in the wilderness? He gave them what, y'all? He, he gave them manna. They wake up every morning with bread from heaven on the ground. And something very important to note is that... Jesus gets into a conversation with the religious leaders of his day about this bread from heaven in John chapter 6, verses 30 to 35. And so the religious leaders were saying to Jesus, Hey, you know, Moses gave our fathers bread from heaven. What you going to give us? That's the idea. Hey, they, they, our... Moses gave our fathers bread from heaven, and Jesus is very quick to tell him in the passage, hey, y'all, that wasn't your father that gave that bread. That was my father that was given that bread. And Jesus goes on in the passage to tell them, and now my father is giving the true bread from heaven. And they said, bring it on, man. Give us this bread. And what did Jesus say? I am the bread of life. But now listen, what this passage lets us know is that that manna in the wilderness was a picture of him. Both of them are referred to in this John 6 passage as bread from heaven. But Jesus makes the distinction that he was the true bread from heaven. And he's not saying that the manna was false bread. What he's saying is that manna in the Old Testament was just a picture. And, and uh, let me just take a couple of minutes to show you how the manna in the wilderness was a picture of Christ. Okay, so this takes us back in the Old Testament to an incredible little passage in Exodus chapter 16. And, and it's here where God lays out this picture of the manna. And I want you to notice that, first of all, from Exodus 16, 15, that it was called manna. 
Okay, now at first glance, that seems rather insignificant, but listen, it isn't. Because you know why the children of Israel called this bread from heaven manna? The reason was because they had never seen anything like it. It was a mystery. Because you know what the word manna means? It means, what is it? They couldn't figure it out. This mysterious bread. And this speaks of what 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 calls the mystery of godliness. And listen, do you know what the mystery of godliness, what he goes on to tell us it is? That God was manifest in the flesh. In John 6, verse 33, Jesus said, For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And again, Jesus is identifying himself as this mysterious bread that he is God in human flesh. Secondly, the end of Exodus 16, 14 says that the manna was small. And of course, the fact that it was small speaks of Christ's humility. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says that though Christ was and has always been equal with the Father in every sense of the word, what it says is that he willingly and willfully took on human flesh in a small little baby that was born in Bethlehem. And then notice thirdly in the middle of Exodus 16, 14, that it was round. And this speaks of Christ's eternality. In John chapter 8 and verse 58, you remember what Jesus says? He said, before Abraham was, what? I am always in the present tense. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come. You understand that God could have made this bread from heaven. He could have made that manna any shape that he wanted to make it, but because it was a picture of Christ, he made it round, having no beginning. Or end. And then, number four, notice in the middle of Exodus 16, 15, that it was a gift. Verse 15 says, And Moses said unto them, This is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat, which speaks of Christ's grace in salvation. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he, what, y'all? He gave his only begotten son. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And, and then notice next, number 5, down in verse 31 of Exodus 16, notice that it was white. Verse 31 says that it was like coriander seed. And, and the main thing that he want, wanted us to see in that, as he clearly says, is the fact that it was... White, which of course speaks of Christ's purity and righteousness. The, the, the curse that Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 says passed on to 
every man by Adam's sin bypassed our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he had no earthly father. And he was born into this world white, absolutely pure and righteous. And the, as the angel told Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. He came into this world white as coriander seed, and according to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15, he remained that way through his entire life. And then number six, it was sweet. Exodus chapter 16 and verse 31 goes on to say that the taste of it was like wafers made with honey, which speaks of man's responsibility to taste of Christ's salvation. Because you see, if you're ever really going to know the sweetness of Christ and his salvation, you've got to taste him. You've got to take him in. Psalm 34 in verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 119 verse 103 says, How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And what he's trying to get us to see here is that it's not just enough to admire the manna. It's not just enough to respect the manna. It's not just enough to believe that that manna would taste good or even to acknowledge that it was a gift. You had to taste it. You had to take it in just as you do with Christ. But listen, before you can do that, you know what you got to do? you got to humble yourself. And that's the next thing we see about this manna that was a picture of Christ from Exodus 16 and verse 14. Number seven, it was on the ground. So you know what you had to do to get it? You had to bow. You had to stoop. You had to bend. Again, picturing the humility that's necessary to receive Christ's salvation. Listen, do you realize, y'all, that he could have put the manna out every morning anywhere that he jolly well pleased? He could have put it in the highest reaches of the trees. He could have put it on the mountaintops. He could have suspended it 50 feet in midair if he wanted to. But you know what he did? He made it accessible to everyone. It, it came to where they were, and it was in proximity to everyone in that camp. But to get it, you had to stoop. And you know who could get it the easiest? Children. Because they didn't have as far to stoop. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 3, except you be converted and become as what? As little children. And then notice one last thing about the manna from Exodus 16, 21. And that is that it must be received early. It must be received early. Verse 21 says, And they gathered it every morning, every man, according to his eating. And when the sun waxed hot... It melted. And this speaks of the urgency of receiving Christ's 
salvation. And listen, I realize that this is a Sunday night. I realize that this is a discipleship conference. But there are no doubt some people that are in this room tonight and you've been saying, you know, one of these days I'm going to receive Christ. One of these days I'm going to taste of the Lord. One of these days I'm going to humble myself. And listen, God tells you in Isaiah 55 and verse 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him when he is near. Because you see, once the sun arose on this planet, listen, the opportunity to receive the manna was gone. It melted. The Bible says in Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, that in the very near future, are you listening? In the very near future, the sun, the capital S-U-N, the capital S-U-N, the sun of righteousness, is going to rise on this planet and he is going to burn up all of his enemies and they will melt like wax. They will melt just like that manna did. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, in verse 8, he says that the Lord is going to be revealed in the very near future Listen, like the sun in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all them who have not obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're going to get the manna, you've got to get it early. You've got to receive it while it is still there. Because listen, once the sun of righteousness rises, it's too late. Okay. Are you done with that, Pastor Mark? Are you happy now? Yeah, kind of. All of that to say, the manna was a picture of... Okay, did we prove that sufficiently? For real? Okay. But there's a very sobering reality in the picture. Because I want you to listen. The manna is a picture of a Christ who doesn't satisfy. And like I said earlier, most Christians in Laodicea have that Christ. And, okay, listen. He sustains them. You ask him, are, hey, are, are you born again? Absolutely, man. Do you know beyond any shadow of a doubt you're going to go to heaven when you die? Absolutely. Do you know the Spirit of God lives in you, brother? Yeah, man. And it's all true. They're really saved. And Christ sustains them. And they'll go to heaven when they die. But if you ask them, are you satisfied? Now, I know we all know the right answer. Oh, yeah, brother. But if you really ask them, and they were really going to be honest, and say, but are you satisfied? They would have to say no. And you know why they'd have to say no? Because they're still hungry. And you know why they're still hungering? 
And God sustains us in the wilderness with manna. But the manna was never intended to satisfy us. The manna was just to keep us alive and to keep the nation of Israel on a, 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 alive, to sustain them until they tapped into the existence that God had intended for them where he was going to feed them with milk and honey and grapes as big as our fat heads. Again, listen, the manna was just to sustain them on an 11-day journey. But when the manna turned into 11 years and 21 years and 31 years, you know what happened? They got sick of the manna. In Numbers chapter 11, picking up in verse 4, it says, And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, oh, Who shall give us flesh to eat? Oh, we remember the fish, Martha. Do you remember the fish, Martha? which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and, oh, the garlic. <laughs> but now our soul is dried away. There's nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Check it out now. And the manna was as coriander seed and the color thereof as the color of that color. <laughs> and the people went about. And the people went about and ground it in mills or beat it in a mortar, baked it in pans, made cakes of it. Do you, know, do you understand what he's saying here? They tried everything within their power to make the manna exciting. They did everything within their power for it to bring them satisfaction. He says they ground it, they crushed it, they rolled it, they baked it, they roasted it, they toasted it, they deep fried it, they put it on the grill, they put ketchup on it, they put hot fudge on it, they blackened it, they lemon peppered it, they pecan crusted it, but it still didn't satisfy them. They cried out, manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for dinner, manna birthday cake, manna valentine cookies, manna alive. We hate this stuff. <laughs> and again, listen, the reason it didn't satisfy them right, is because God didn't intend for it to. It was just to sustain them until they got into the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, you know what God says? 
It, it says he fed them with manna, but allowed them to hunger. Because, listen, y'all, don't miss this. The purpose of the Exodus wasn't just to bring them out of Egypt. It was to bring them in to Canaan. And so, listen, God chose not to satisfy them in the wilderness. Because if they got satisfied in the wilderness, what would happen, y'all? They've just parked their fat behinds right there. When God intended for them to be in that land and experience an entirely different kind of life. Okay, you remember where we started several weeks ago? We, we began in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and he told us that this whole thing of the Exodus and the wilderness and Canaan was a portrait of the Christian life. And he told us that he wanted to make sure that what happened to the children of Israel didn't happen to us because here's the way that it goes, y'all. Tell me if I'm wrong. Somebody gets saved, and, and like Israel, there is that initial buzz. You know what I'm talking about? You get saved, and man, the release from the bondage, man, you're all stoked. And that'll, that'll take you pretty far. But if you ain't tapping into what that salvation was all about, it's real easy in the wilderness to begin to question whether this Jesus thing is really all what it was intended to be. Is it all, is it all that? And, and so what starts happening to people in the wilderness is they start hungering for how they were fed in Egypt. And you remember how we used to be fed in Egypt? The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And, and, and listen, we're hungering for the wrong thing. We're supposed to be hungering to be fed the way that God intended us to be fed in Canaan. The place of abundance. Listen, do you understand this, the whole Canaan thing? It's the place of abundance. It's the life of fullness in Christ. It's the abundant life that Jesus talked about. And that is what he intended for every single one of us in our salvation. But we missed the point. We missed the purpose. And, and we get all slap happy about the fact that we were delivered out of the bondage of our sins and we're going to go to heaven when we die. When this was actually for that. Some of you are probably going, this is a discipleship conference. You ain't used the D word all night. Okay. In your notes, what does all this have to do with discipleship? Number one, our exodus, okay, in, in case you were sleeping during this part, our salvation 
it wasn't simply for Jesus to take us to his home when we die. It is to make us his home while we live. And man, I, I hope that that will resonate with you as we saw earlier. God brought us out of the death of our sin so that he could bring us into the life of fullness and abundance that is found in Christ. But listen, this was for that purpose. Do you understand that the people who bear fruit are the people who live in Canaan? The people who bear fruit, and I'm talking about the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of souls. It's people that live in Canaan and experience the abundant life that, that Christ intended. And listen, these are the people that reach the world. That's what this has to do with discipleship, y'all. Listen. For us to come to this conference and be living in the wilderness, hungering for how we were fed in Egypt and suppressing the flesh. We're never going to reach the world that way. We'll never make disciples that way. God intended to make us his home while we live. And yes... Is it, I, I, I'm all about it. If it sounds like I'm, I don't want to go to heaven, I do. I, I want him to take me to his home when I die, but there's more to it than that. He wants to make us his home while we live. And then number two, after our exodus, our salvation, listen, there is a wilderness to go through. And, and listen, y'all, when someone is brought out of Egypt, man, as the body of Christ, we got to rejoice about that, right? But listen, y'all, in the midst of our rejoicing, we've also got to face the fact that that new life that just was delivered out of the bondage of their sin into this world as Satan held them captive in his snare Hmm. they've got a wilderness to go through. That few ever make it out of. But with many of them, God was not well pleased for they were overthrown. Where, y'all? In the wilderness. And listen, there, there, there is a purpose that God has in the exodus or in the wilderness. It, it is for a specific purpose. There is a wilderness to go through. And the reason there is a wilderness to go through is the exodus back here is where God brings me out of Egypt. But do you know what the wilderness is? It's where God brings Egypt out of me. Do you have ears to hear that? Someone has said that it, it took God 40 hours to get the children of Israel out of Egypt. And it took him 40 
years to get Egypt out of them. Next, the, the Exodus deals with the enemy without, on the outside. It deals with Satan. Okay, listen, the wilderness deals with the enemy within. What I like to refer to as the enemy in the me. My flesh. And listen, y'all, as long as we're dinking around in the flesh, we'll never get in the cave. This is where the flesh gets dealt with. Next, the Exodus is what puts me on the way. The wilderness determines whether I will go all the way. And this is what Pastor Sam is going to be talking about in those morning sessions, the cost of discipleship. Yay! Again, man, we rejoice about our salvation. It got us on the way. And God wants to figure out, will you go all the way with me? And then lastly, number three, God never intended for a New Testament believer to journey through the wilderness. You know what I'm going to say? Alone. And this is what we're talking about this week with discipleship. I, and I, I know I've taken a long time and, and went around my elbow to get to my thumb. <laughs> to try to get us to see why it is Christianity is in the shape it's in and why believers that know Christ and are going to go to heaven live lives that are so jacked up that we look a whole lot like the children of Israel. But listen, the way that God designed this thing is discipleship is this, y'all. Discipleship is someone who is living in Canaan the land of fruit bearing. Being used of God to deliver a lost person out of Egypt. These are the people that win some people to Christ. Most Christians are going to go their whole life, going to get to the judgment seat of Christ and have never won a single person to Christ. This is the bearing and discipleship is someone living in Canaan being used of God to deliver a lost person out of Egypt and would you listen to this and then taking them by the spiritual hand and walking with them through the wilderness until they make their way into Canaan You're going to want to pack up. Just hold on just a sec. <laughs> He's finally through. <laughs> I, man, I, this is an important conference this week, y'all. And, and, and we're not just here to learn cute little methodology. 
Listen, we're here tonight to be challenged to get out of the wilderness. Anybody believe that other than Joe? You know, it may just be, y'all, that before we can really have the conference God wants us to have and, and learn about making disciples, we might need to talk to God about the purpose of our salvation. Hey, I, I don't want to, hey, I think that you are one of those two out of those 603,550. Okay, it's everybody else that I'm worried about, including myself. But, but listen, y'all, God has a plan to reach the world. But it ain't going to be us if we are not tapping into the existence that God intended for us in Canaan. And you'll find this week that what discipleship is is Winning someone to Christ, edifying them in the faith, and equipping them to live in Canaan so that they can be used of God to deliver a lost person out of Egypt, edify them in the faith, and walk with them by the spiritual hand until they get into Canaan so that they, I think you get it, let's bow our heads, Lord, Tonight, I, I pray that the words off the, the screen and our Bibles will find entrance into our hearts. And I, I pray, Lord, that we'll all be challenged tonight to learn from Israel's example and the purposes that you had in delivering us out of Egypt, Lord, help us to find the Christ that satisfies in Canaan. Lord, rather than hungering for how we used to be fed in our lost condition, Lord, may our eyes get focused on how you intend to feed us in that abundant life that you talked about that's found only in Christ. So Lord, will you take this, this conference and Lord, I, I pray that it will be a life-changing time for every single one of us. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name.